This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is uh, Liz Miller, president of Summit Place Financial Advisors, and we are speaking with her about her book, Clutter-Free Wealth, A Goal-Oriented Guide to Gaining Control of Your Affluence. Liz, thank you so much for speaking today with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, for, for many rich families, uh, uh, it, seems that the, it seems like the more their affluence grows, the more they seem to lose control over their money. Uh, you write in your book that over time, wealth portfolios sometimes seem to become like cluttered garages. So wh- why does that happen? I think that we reach this point of clutter and this feeling of lack of control uh, as a byproduct of success. And this is particularly true uh, for those that have sort of uh, built their own success, let's put it that way, uh, less so for the inheritor. Because early in the career, uh, someone finds they're able to start saving, they're actually able to save a fair amount, and the first thing they may do is go to a friend or go online to a mutual fund company and and make a first purchase. And so sometimes that first purchase is uh, an insurance product of some time that they're uh, convinced makes sense, or they're doing it themselves through um, back many years ago, it would be going directly to a Vanguard or Fidelity. Today, people would all go online. And that's their first saving slash investment. And as they become more successful, they may add to that, but they start realizing they need something different or they need what we want to say is diversification. But again, they may still be sort of starting out and not have a good vision of that. So a lot of times, wealth gets sort of cobbled together until such time the person realizes they really do need a professional advisor to help tell them how to put it together. Um, Historically, if that first advisor even was perhaps with a a well-known brokerage house, uh, a, a Merrill Lynch or a Morgan Stanley, that person still might have only seen a portion of the investments and wealth and holdings of the person because there were limits to what they could give advice on. So even if that person went out for professional advice, depending on the type of advice they got, they still might have been on their own, you know, sort of putting together on a legal pad or on a spreadsheet a list of everything they owned periodically to see what their total wealth was. And that's how we get to this point of sort of a cluttered garage. I also think that's how we get to this feeling that a lot of wealthy people I've spoken to say, you know, I I just don't know what I own and I don't feel like I control it. So it's not that they aren't making decisions, but there isn't enough confidence in how it all fits together to feel like there's a sense of control. Uh, no, that, that makes sense. And since you deal with quite a few of these uh, affluent uh, individuals and inve- investors, uh, I wonder in your experience, what, what is the most cluttered wealth portfolio that you've encountered? And what, did, what mistakes did the investor or the family make that failed to deal with the cluster while it was still building up? Oh, um, <laughs> I think it's it's the mix, just as I described to you. I think one of the most cluttered that I saw uh, was a family where there were specific areas that were cluttered. Investments are very easy to declutter. 
So if somebody has a variety of accounts, it's very easy for us to help them simplify that, do some consolidation, help them understand what is in each account, and then start taking steps to uh, clean up both asset allocation and asset location. So that piece of it can be easy. What stays very complicated and that we've seen is, uh, on the one hand, a collection of insurance policies, uh, and we've we've definitely seen that a few times where um, I always see insurance policies are sold because they are so difficult to understand. It's usually a professional who sells insurance convincing this person they need it. And in the case where I'm involved, uh, perhaps early in life there was uh, a very strong role for that, by, but by the time we're talking, often they're saying, and oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, I've got this policy and this policy, and some of them are what we call sort of cash value policies. Um, and there's no easy way to simplify that. Um, yes, there's things you can do to roll them into each other or create a new product, but that in itself can get very cluttered. Figuring out what role they play, how to work with them, continue to use them. The other piece to the particular family I'm thinking of that was got very cluttered was the grandchildren's accounts. So there was a desire to help with the future education of all these grandchildren, and they started opening 529 accounts. And uh, this is a very common, easy thing to do, and it's a favorite recommendation of lawyers and accountants because of some of the tax benefits. Uh, but this family had eight of them. And when you reach that situation, then we talk a lot about, you know, there are much better ways to address the future support of a growing body of grandchildren than trying to keep track of fund, follow, you know, four, five, and in this case, eight different 529 accounts for grandchildren. And again, then it's very hard to do anything with those. Uh, in this case, what we did is we simplified it a bit by taking what existed and, um, combining them all to a single beneficiary of the oldest grandchild, and then we dealt with all the rest of the grandchildren through a commingled family trust. And that met the family's goals in many different ways as well, so it was a much better vehicle for them. But again, I feel like these are the kinds of clutter that really accumulates over time. It's not that the original decision is at all a bad decision. It's that success breeds some complexity, and you start realizing it no longer fits the best, just like a cluttered closet of clothes, I say. You know, some of them you're just not wearing very well anymore. So, so uh, it, it's, uh, thank you. I think it's a great analogy to see how clutter builds up. Uh, and one of the things I found interesting about your book is when you point out some of the reasons why clutter not just builds up, but it also persists. And one of the reasons is, uh, uh, as you point out, is the desire of investors to keep control. Uh, what, what can be done about that? I think that there's everybody wants control. Uh, I don't think there's an investor out there that doesn't want control. But we define control by the experiences we bring along. And I believe that that does lead to some of this persistent clutter until we can start introducing um, control and confidence and show that there's another approach. So my firm is a fully discretionary investment manager. And I, I start there just to say that's how, that we, 
work with our clients to manage their investments day in and day out so they don't need to. Now, to many people who have never experienced that, that sounds like I'm saying our clients give up control to us. And that is by no means the case when we're talking about the essence of controlling your wealth. But there's an education process to help people understand that and get comfortable of that. And when we are talking to people who have built their own wealth, built their own success, of course, there is a sense that it has been their singular effort. And so it's not surprising that they look at their financial wealth similarly. They've probably been making all the decisions. They may, in fact, have been literally doing it themselves. Or if they have had some help, it's help where they're having the ultimate decision. Uh, and that's how they define control. And what we want to talk about is let's talk about what's most important to you. What are we trying to achieve? What is, does this money, what does the financial wealth represent to you today, in the future, uh, you know, for future generations? And it's not a quick conversation, and you don't build trust in a meeting or two. It is most definitely a journey and a process to start working together to understand what is this all really about? And therefore, what lets me sleep at night comfortably? Let, what lets me go about the things that are most important to me in my day that may not include looking at a computer screen and deciding if anything in my financial wealth needs to be traded or changed? And how can I feel like I still have the ultimate control, but I have hired someone with that proficiency to take care of the day in and day out for me. So I don't have to do things that, in fact, were pretty distracting. Right. No, I think that makes sense. And, and, I, and I completely agree with you that uh, a lot of investors and, and, and uh, wealthy families uh, try to unclutter the mess and deal with complexity uh, by employing uh, experts, uh, uh, accountants, lawyers, uh, brokers, and so on. But... So, do you, do you think that sometimes that adds to the com complexity uh, rather than reducing it? Well, my firm really targets clients that have about $5 million to $25 million plus in wealth. Uh, and I share that because I think that is a particularly difficult range. Uh, we hear regularly about the incredibly successful families uh, with hundreds of millions in wealth or more. And at that level... There's often, we talk about a multifamily office, we talk about a family office, or we talk about a whole dedicated staff that can make all these decisions for those families and for the following generations. But there's this middle ground where, today at least, we leave these successful people and families really to have to coordinate their own professionals. Uh, there's very few coordinated efforts for them, and that is one of the things my firm has walked into and we try to talk about in the book where you have a uh, chapter about building your team because there is a level of complexity where you need the expertise of a qualified estate planning attorney, a qualified accountant, a financial advisor who understands the nuances of different trust structures and taxable and non-taxable accounts. And you're not going to find all that expertise in a single person, mm -hmm. and you deeply need this range of expertise. So to my mind, what we want to do and what we talk about in the book is how do you find those allied professionals and then identify your quarterback, your trusted advisor, whatever phrase you want? Because to reach that level of 
confidence, control, and able to lead the life you want day by day. You have to have one of those professionals in a role where they, in fact, will help coordinate the other professionals for you. Right. You also write in the book that uh, the first step in uncluttering uh, one's financial life is to have clarity about money values. Uh, And I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what those are and what bearing they have on the financial decisions that families have to make. Absolutely. I think this is an area that gets skipped over a lot. Uh, I spoke to it a little bit when I said we want to understand what someone wants to achieve with their wealth, how they view their wealth. Uh, It is not surprising how many couples we sit down with who have never really had to share with each other how they view their wealth. And there's a couple of major values. You can, you can search online. You can find others who talk a lot about money values, and you can find many different ones. And I sort of talk about the most common ones we think about. Um, and right at the top of the list is security. Do we look at our money as security? And particularly those who are self-made or those who may have come from a struggled background, a background you know, with nothing at all, or a background in which they saw ups and downs to the family wealth, no matter how much is in the bank today, they may still always think of their financial wealth as security. And they may always have a feeling that it could go away tomorrow. And so it does no good and isn't productive to work with that person and tell them all the exciting things they could go do with their money or investments that could give them wonderful future returns and um sexy kinds of opportunities, as we sort of say in the biz, because it's not going to resonate well with someone who really, no matter how successful they've been, is always afraid of losing it, always has this feeling that no matter how much they've accumulated, it could be gone tomorrow. So that's a money value of security. I think a lot of immigrants would probably fall into that category that you just described. I think you're absolutely right. And what becomes interesting then is if someone with that value is the spouse in the same successful financial relationship with a spouse with a very different money value. So it's equally common to find someone who is self-made and been very successful who views their money as a measure of success. Mm -hmm. And no matter how much they accumulate, they're always looking at that as a number, as a full bucket and they measure their own personal self-worth and success by that number. So that person is very interested in continuing to grow it and continuing to grow it better than somebody else, even if there's very little chance they'll ever spend it all. But they are so tied up in their success and their self-worth in measuring what is in the bank. And so those are two extreme money values, and you can imagine in a couple, if these two people come together and view money that way, then there is a discussion to be drawn out to really make long-term decisions. And in a day-by-day situation, those two money values may have never come in conflict in the marriage, particularly if money was never really an issue. If you never had to make those difficult decisions about how are we paying bills this month or, you know, what car are we going to buy because we can't afford another, then those successful families never really had to unpack their different money values. But 
when we start working with them and we're starting to talk about future values, future goals, legacy goals, then we need to start unpacking those money values and see how they come into play for what each is trying to accomplish. So uh, could you give a couple of examples of the consequences when members of a family are out of sync on money values? And in your experience, how best can these issues be addressed and solved? I love to tell the story of uh, a young couple. This is actually the children of a main client uh, who shared a story that just brought this into wonderful, clear vision and then how we talked about it. And it all came up over a new car. They needed a new car. And uh, they shared with me that they would be buying this new car. Um, and then they went about it. And then the next time I met with them, there was a, a, I just there was clearly a tense situation, clearly disagreement uh, and befuddlement over all the emotion around this car. So I asked them to share the story about the car, and I, and I heard the very differing views. And so I looked at each of them, and I said, tell me about the cars in your family growing up. And the one told me about uh, a family where a new car was purchased every few years. It was always shiny and new. It always had uh, the latest features. You know, as each new development came along, it had the, the power windows without question. It had air conditioning, then it had heated seats, and then it had navigation and these various things. And when this person became of driving age, there was a car for them to drive. And it and I don't recall if that was a new or used car, but it was a car also with, uh, as I would say, toys. You know, there was nothing bare bones about it. It was always about a car was a vehicle to be enjoyed. A car was a vehicle to give a wonderful ride as you went wherever you were going. And then I looked at the other and said, tell me about cars in your house. And the person remembered really owning about three cars, uh, doesn't recall any of them being bought new, and a family value that the car really was just to get you from one place to the other. There was no focus on toys in the car, per se. Uh, it certainly wasn't viewed as something to be luxurious or wonderful to be in. It was like, time for a new car. You know, let's get a car that gets us where we're going. So that when, uh, in this case, the husband had gone and bought the new car and brought it home, it was the wife who had grown up with very basic cars and just was resentful of the car that came home. And, in fact, the husband thought he had put a lot of thought into the features of a car his wife would enjoy. <laughs> but this different view of money values came out clearly in the way they were raised in their cars, and there was uh, this horrible disconnect. And, and it launched a wonderful conversation that went great from there. But they had no sense that they weren't communicating. They were really befuddled to you know, find that each was unhappy and didn't understand what the right purchase was to be. Yeah, I, I remember the story from the book, and <clears throat> I, I seem to remember that the husband actually bought a more modest car than he might have because he was kind of deferring to his wife, but it still caused some conflict. But how, how, exactly. how, 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 did, uh, how does one resolve uh, these kinds of conflicts over money issues uh, and money values? Uh, because they're likely to keep coming up, if not about a car, about other things as well. What I have found is that if if we can help open that conversation where they realize there is such thing as a money value and they look at money differently, then 
we can help adjudicate disagreements over time, but the most important thing is you've made a couple of people aware of something they've never thought about before. And just that helps them see things a little differently. And when they do disagree, often they can realize and remember, oh, wait a minute, um, I remember you know, he has this feeling that money is all about security. Okay, so, so let's keep talking about this before we go on this big trip so I can get him to understand, you know, why this is a wonderful trip and why this doesn't put our wealth at risk. So those kinds of conversations I have seen follow on just an awareness between two people that they come from a different set of money values. Now, some, uh, some members in a family value security, while others value independence or success, as you were saying earlier. Uh, what implications would this have for the kind of assets in which they should invest? The, the difference in money values definitely can be reflected in the right kinds of asset allocation for a couple and the right kinds of um, long-term investments. When there is a, a big difference where um, someone who cares about protection naturally tends to be a more conservative investor. Someone who sees opportunity and success is that investor who's generally looking uh, for more aggressive investments and enjoys watching those investments and how some of them will do. Um, and it's not always easy to bring that together, honestly. I have a few situations where what we will do is in some accounts that are literally uh, named in the individual's name. So they may all be sharing wealth as a couple together, but they have some accounts that are separately named. We sometimes will, on average, uh, tilt those two accounts to the interests of the individual so that someone who likes this idea of a trading account or a more aggressive account can maybe identify one account for that purpose only so that they can focus on it and the other can understand the aggressiveness is bounded. It's not unbounded. It's not going to get out of control. It's a certain limited commitment. Now, when it comes to choosing advisors, uh, affluent uh, investors sometimes seem to want to judge them based on how often they beat the market. Uh, what do you think of that approach? <laughs> uh, we firmly believe that that is not the right approach. And in fact, if that is all that someone comes to us with and after a discussion they still believe that, we usually will say we're not the right fit as a firm for them. Um, you know, part of the point of the whole book, which is a goal-oriented approach to um, affluence, is that it really doesn't matter what the market does when your overall goals are 20, 30 years out and are really about sustaining a lifestyle, creating a legacy for a family, um, you know, creating some type of philanthropic legacy perhaps. And it's not that these don't need to grow well, they do, but uh, I always talk about it did no good in 2008 to beat the market if you were only down 25% and the market was down 38%. Um, you know, So we really work with clients to try to um, identify the major goals and through a series of analysis actually put a number to it. What is the growth of this portfolio? What is the goal for this portfolio to grow year in and year out to have confidence we can meet? a number of short and long-term goals, whatever they may be. And that way, 
we may not outperform on the upside. We may outperform on the downside. But whichever the relatives are to the market becomes irrelevant if we can track quarter after quarter, year after year, that the portfolio is hitting the goal we know will get us to the end point. So you're, um, I'm glad you mentioned goals because your book recommends that wealthy families should focus on the three L goals. Could you explain what these are and why they matter? Sure. The L goals are a way to think about them. So we talk about um, within a lifetime, the first shorter type term goals we sort of call leisure goals. And these are goals that are up and beyond your everyday life. So um, these goals can apply to someone no matter what the age, but uh, it's easy to think about them if you're maybe talking to someone in their 40s and 50s or someone who has an eye towards retirement not too far off. And the leisure goals may be the things that are up and beyond today's lifestyle. They may be significant trips. They may be vacation homes. They may be things that are going to make a difference in your lifestyle. Um, they may be a completely different type of lifestyle at the beginning of a retirement, and that in itself becomes your leisure goal to have several years of doing something differently. Um, for the bulk of our years where we have left our primary career behind, we talk about lifestyle goals. And that's the, um, the cash flow question that everybody has, no matter what their wealth, I believe, which is, what does it take to maintain the lifestyle that I desire? Do I have enough in my pot? Or for our clients, it's really, what does that look like year in and year out? You know, can I spend that every year to support the lifestyle that uh, I want for many years to come? So that's the second L, lifestyle. And so you may have lifestyle goals, and there may be some leisure goals on top of the lifestyle goals. And then finally, we talk about the legacy goals. And you may have legacy goals early in life or later in life, but typically, we find the families we work with aren't really ready to talk about the legacy goals until uh, many years of having left a primary career behind, many years of living successfully off their portfolio or in what you know we traditionally call a retirement. And then we start talking about the legacy goals. And some of the legacy goals are financial, uh, but many of them are emotional goals. How and when do I start gifting to my children and my grandchildren? Um, and how do I do it in a way that I can continue to maintain good financial values for them, their incentives to save, um, how can I support the families they're building without taking away uh, the path that's important to them to follow with their children? And these are the questions we find ourselves working with much more often than the very easy or easier, how much money do I want to leave to whom? Um, so those are the three L's, the leisure, lifestyle, and legacy. And how should investors align their investments with these goals? Uh, could you give an example where this worked and maybe a second example where it didn't? Sure. The most uh, the reason the three L's can be helpful is that they also have a time frame to them. So a legacy goal, uh, it's not uncommon for us to sit down with someone who may have many, many years of life ahead but has already said, I want to make sure I can – uh, take this wealth I've accumulated, and at least this much of it will be available to my children. So that's a very measurable legacy goal. But it's a very long-term goal. Uh, it could be 20, 30, 40 years off. 
So investments to reach that goal can be very long-term in nature. Um, they also probably can have a little more risk to them because there's so much time before they need to be achieved. And so we can invest a certain amount towards that specific goal uh, with more market exposure, more opportunistic exposure, and less worrying about capital protection in the early years. Leisure goals by nature are generally pretty short-term since they're the things up and beyond our lifestyle. So those are at the other end of the spectrum. We really need to protect those funds. We need to think about how we're going to invest those funds to make them available. Um, I haven't seen too many times when this has failed. What I will sometimes see, and this is more with our second generation of clients, not so much the first, is that um, they fail to share with us the leisure goals. Mm. They may be talking about leisure goals at home, but when we talk about their portfolio, they forget to mention a leisure goal, which generally means we probably are investing for them and going over a portfolio uh, position to be longer term, and then on very short notice, they say, oh, we've come up with an investment opportunity in an apartment building we want to make, or uh, we're buying a second home somewhere. Um, and so then there's a quick liquidity need, uh, which has not been worked into the portfolio. Now, we always can meet that need, but it definitely ends up with suboptimal performance because when we can plan ahead, obviously, we can build a portfolio that can meet those needs um, no matter what market conditions are. When we have a very short-term need for liquidity, we may be forced to make sales at a time that may or may not be the best time from an investing standpoint. Uh, how can, uh, speaking of about uh, legacy, how, how, how can investors unclutter their approach to philanthropy? Um, now, philanthropy is interesting, particularly in America, and we talk about this a little bit in the book. It was really interesting to me as I did some additional research uh, to build out what we were talking about in this book. and. Americans are the most philanthropic people in the world. So no matter what our level of wealth in the United States, we give. You know, we're the first to give when there's a tragedy in the world, and we give regularly to support those who are not as uh, fortunate as us. And it's a relative thing because no matter how much we do or don't have in the bank, we are very aware of those even less fortunate than we are. So. Um, philanthropy becomes, I think, very uh, important to uh, the overall goals of many people we work with. And whether you call it charity or philanthropy, uh, there can be some subtle differences, but the overall goal is the same, and that is a commitment to want to support other needs in our society and how we want to go about them. Um, how does that get cluttered? That gets cluttered often the same way a portfolio does, in the sense that maybe early in life there were, was a short list of things you wanted to support. Uh, you may have supported them once a year with a check, and that that list keeps growing. And uh, while it's still very successful, we sometimes meet with families who have done nothing but what I call checkbook philanthropy, which is they have a, a list they keep track of of those organizations that are important to them, and once a year they have to sit down and write checks to all of them and then see that these checks clear. Uh, and it's, it's very generous, it's very wonderful, but it is a way in which the effort can get cluttered. And it also can 
take away from the ability to look on in a bigger way as to which of these are most important to someone or which ones might be ready for some additional um, commitment. And that commitment doesn't necessarily have to be financial. Many times uh, as life goes on, whether it's just you're more financially able or you're more able with your time, you start identifying some of those organizations that have been meaningful to you and you want to do more and you want to give more with your time, with your leadership, uh, with your planning abilities. And those are some of the things we talk about in terms of thinking about philanthropy more strategically. What are the talents that you bring to your efforts along with the financial resources? Because um, some of those can be exceedingly satisfying and can play a very big role in what we do once we've moved on from you know our nine to five everyday careers. Then one one last question, Liz. You, uh, the, the the primary focus in your book is for wealthy investors and families, but I wonder if there are any lessons that are also useful for people lower down the economic ladder. What do you think? Absolutely. Um, when we wrote this book, um, the editor and publisher kind of kept sort of saying right at the time, would you write a second one that's not targeted just to the very successful families, or can we do a follow-on? And we had to make a strategic decision when we wrote the book and when we framed the book. Uh, but I've heard from many people who have read it who uh, are not affluent, don't consider themselves that financially successful. And I think there's so much... Uh, I, so much support in there and ideas of even right from the start, how to keep things more streamlined, how to understand you can be very successful with your savings and your investing without letting it get uh, more complicated than it needs to be. Um, and that's really the gist of the whole book, that the reason we lose the sense of feeling like we're in control is because things get way more complicated than they need to be. Uh, it's all about simplifying, and really, no matter how much wealth we have, we can keep working on simplifying and understanding that we can reach our goals with a very simple, straight-lined um, straight approach. It doesn't have to have lots of bells and whistles and lots of accessories to be successful. And in fact, we are likely to feel the most confident in it when we keep it simple and understandable. Liz, thanks so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.